Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkel. Well, good afternoon. Uh, You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer blog talk radio show, and we're coming to you live from the campus of the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. If you've dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into this dynamic craft beer industry, our online certificate program offers industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. Your instructors are craft beer experts from across the United States and Canada, and the University of Vermont's Business Craft Beer program was uh, specifically developed for those who want to learn about the business side of this exciting industry. Uh, For further details, give us a call at 800-639-3210, or you can visit us on Facebook. Uh, Page is UVM Business of Craft Beer. So today we have two guests uh, with many years of experience in the beer industry, uh, John Reynolds, president of Brew Plan Inc., and Mike Kallenberger, uh, brand and commercial strategy consultant. Before uh, coming on the air this afternoon, I tallied the years both of our guests have worked in the industry over 65 years combined. That's a lot of experience, uh, insights, and I imagine stories. Uh, We'll certainly get to their insights, but maybe I can tease out a few stories along the way. Uh, John is president, uh, John Reynolds is president of Brew Plan, as I mentioned, uh, over 35 years of working with beer, wine, and craft spirits. John assisted Abita Brewing to successful launch in nine states and helped City Brewery in La Crosse, Wisconsin, reach annual sales of $70 million. when he was the director of sales and marketing. Uh, Currently, John is president of Group Plan Inc., a consulting firm that provides strategic planning, marketing sales, production forecasting, and logistics, uh, new brand launches, among other support services. Mike Kallenberger is a brand and commercial strategy consultant and has served, served for almost three decades at Miller Brewing Company, followed by the last six years as an independent consultant. An economist by training, Mike has spent most of his career in marketing, specializing in brand positioning and strategy, consumer insights, situation analysis, marketplace assessment, and interpretation of cultural and consumer trends. And for those of you who read New Brewer Magazine from the Brewers Association, perhaps you've seen a number of his articles uh, that he's written over the years. And I would be remiss in not mentioning that both of these gentlemen play prominent roles as instructors in our Business of Craft Beer program here at the University of Vermont. So welcome, John and Mike, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. I know both of you travel quite a lot of your work, and where are both of you coming from today? 
I'm uh, from uh, Onalaska, Wisconsin, on the western side between Minneapolis and Madison. Okay. And I'm in the same state, Wisconsin, on the opposite side, just outside Milwaukee. Well, that's a, that's a coincidence that our two guests are from the same state. <laughs> Uh, so, John and Mike, let's talk about beer. Uh, <clears throat> after years of 15% plus annual growth, uh, there are signs that the craft sector is beginning to slow down. A note of uh, still healthy growth, but it is slowing down, as probably should be expected, as bubbles in recent years have taught us nothing that grows in a hockey stick like fashion is sustainable, so perhaps slowing down is actually a sign of health. Uh, projections by IBIS World <clears throat> is that over the next five years, the industry will grow at an annualized rate of 4.5%. What data are you seeing that informs us about this slowdown? Is it simply a moderation of growth or an area for concern? And could you also speak to what you see as the reasons, possible reasons for this slowdown? Sure. Um the uh, the slowdown is obviously coming from a variety of uh, different factors. Um, the, not the, which the first one is the number of entrants that have joined uh, the craft beer segment. It, it is uh, getting crowded in some areas of the country. Uh, saturation has set in in a few places. That does not mean that there aren't rooms for growth in several other markets across the country. Um, Yes, the 15% growth rate was uh, uh, euphoria. It uh, created a lot of excitement. Obviously, a lot of people jumped in because of that excitement. Um, the slowdown was somewhat uh, expected. As the numbers get bigger and bigger, it's tough to put those type of uh, trends on top of one another. Um, so the 8% growth of 2016 uh, is obviously translated to what Greg said, four and a half percent going forward i think um a couple of reasons one is as the number of new entrants have uh, surfaced in craft brewing some are very inexperienced and therefore their quality control standards may not be as good as the people that have been in it five to ten to fifteen years so there's always the um i guess uh, wake-up call that quality should come first. Um, retailers aren't building necessarily larger stores, and they aren't now necessarily allocating too much more shelf space or cooler space to the craft or imported segment. Um, that does not mean that they're not building some new new stores or new shelf sets that some are expanding craft and imports. It means that the majority of them have said, we'll watch what's, and we'll see what happens to craft before we add new cooler doors or new shelves. So discontinuation, or DQ as it's called, um, isn't rampant, but they are culling out the non-sellers or the, people, the, the brands that are no longer up going forward. And that's in sharp contrast to two to three, four years ago when shelf and cooler space was being converted to craft and imports. So there's been a slowdown there. Um, tap handles in the bar and grills or the pubs are not growing exponentially. So the days of the 60 to 100 tap line places in pubs 
um, are not being built today. Some are actually downsizing that to keep tap beers fresher and yet still offer more variety. So while there is the 100 tap line place out there, the yards of the world or whatever, um, there's not a significant amount being built today with that type of uh, presence. It's more in the 30 to 50 range and even smaller. So uh, I see that as a potential reason for some of the slowdown in growth. Great. Uh, it was John John Reynolds speaking. Uh, Mike, what, what's your view? Well, I think uh, what I'm a, the perspective I take is sort of a good compliment to John's because I think it's fair to say he's focusing on the supply side. I tend to look more at consumers and the demand side. And if uh, if you look at the long-term growth of crafts, it's a phenomenon that's really been driven primarily by word of mouth. And anytime uh, a social trend grows by word of mouth, it follows a fairly predictable pattern. It's uh, there's a I don't want to get too wonkish here, but there's something called an S curve because it looks like a flattened letter S, and that's probably a better representation of the, the, the growth curve for craft than even a hockey stick. And what happens is that you reach a point where it's just tougher to grow because you're, you're sort of converting people from non-craft drinkers to craft drinkers. And the, the, the more people over the years who become craft drinkers, the, the pool of available drinkers is shrinking. And you're, you're down to the people who are a little more hardcore, a little more, I don't want to say resistant to craft, but less likely to, to, to make the switch. So it's, it's, it, the short answer there is it's, it is a natural slowing down, I think. It's, it's as John said, to be expected. You, you, the former growth rates are just unsustainable. I think given where craft is, its current uh, size and market share, uh, you know, 4 or 5% growth rates for the next few years should be considered healthy because it's, it's not a mature category by any means, but it is in the process of maturing. And uh, the other thing I would say I'd point out um, – I don't know how relevant this is, but categories tend to grow when there's excitement about them, and that excitement tends to be related to innovation. Uh, Kraft has done a great job of innovating over the years. I'm really asking the question more than offering an answer. Uh, is, is, are we hitting a wall in terms of innovation? I mean, uh, there's, there's, the category can't innovate forever. So to some extent, I wonder if that's sort of uh, – lessening the excitement around craft and kind of hampering category growth overall. So the short answer is I think we're still in a good place. Uh, I do have some concerns about uh, consumer excitement about craft, but I think that will continue. Yeah, you, you just hit on a, a question that I've had. Um, uh, I, I remember a conversation, uh, Bart Watson from the Brewers Association in one of our shows mentioned, you know, the, and has written a lot about the millennials and how they're pushing uh, uh, consumption and they have a strong desire to try new products. Um, they're always pushing for new products and new experimentation. And yet I guess the question is how much more exper experimentation or innovation, as you put it, uh, is there? Can beer styles be pushed to their outer limits continuously or is there some limit? And where would this growth come from if it's not if it's not from uh, innovation and experimentation. Any thoughts? I, well, I think the innovation lately has been more in the area of packaging. I mean, canned craft beer is not new per se, but the, the, it's still growing tremendously. And I think the more brewers that can, 
their beer, the more uh, opportunities to get craft beer to new occasions there'll be. So that'll contribute to growth. And now, of course, you've got the crawlers and growlers, which are seem to be the latest big thing. So it might not be in terms of styles or brewing techniques as much as it is packaging or some other aspect of the business. Uh-huh. I, I, I wanted to ask. Okay, I wanted to ask both of you about um, the the uh, slowing um, and, and its impact on different sectors of of the industry. Uh, um, when I when I look at my local uh, brewery scene here in Vermont, are are the small local breweries going to be impacted the same way that uh, a regional brewery is, or what about the larger national craft brands? Um, how are they all going to be impacted by this? slowing uh slowing of the industry uh, john yes um i think obviously slower growth hurts everybody in the entire craft beer category i don't i don't think there's one company that doesn't feel the impact of a slowdown uh whether that's they're taking some of your growth away or their newer entrants are coming in and fighting you for that business um but the smaller craft brewer I think needs growth to sustain their cash flow and kind of get to that next level of maybe expansion into regional or let's say neighboring states and also affording the new technology or the new tanks or whatever the the new uh the new investment is for them could be a packaging machine could be a quality control piece could be uh marketing whatever they they always seem to be reaching for that investment. So if you take that growth away, some of that cash that could be generated from sales isn't there to sustain that. And they may have to put things on hold or they may have to plan for them in a different way, buying used equipment or buying used technology pieces. I mean, those are, those are just things that happen to the smaller person. The regional brewer tends to weather storms like this a little better. They tend to, uh, be able to spread stuff out across soft sales periods better than the smaller brewer due to their scale, maybe the breadth of their portfolio of what they have to offer the consumer and their reach into markets that are still growing. Not every market is slowing down. There's some markets that continue to, even during soft sales periods, grow. Well, that's where the regional brewer can focus more of their resources and put more people in or, or launch new products into that growth area that the small brewer who's usually tied to one state or a local market can't. They have to uh, put up with the economics, and Mike can talk to that about uh, how a small market can be. You know, you lose one of your major employers in a, in a major market or you know, a market that you're servicing, uh, and you might hurt for five years before that employer is replaced. So um, I think the uh, smaller brewer uh, needs the growth as much as, as much as the regional, but probably more so. In terms of the national player, um, you know, we, we've seen a, a real, real slowdown here of, of a few of the largest players in craft. Uh, it, it obviously is affecting, um, you know, the, the Sierra Nevadas, the Sam Adams of the world, a little, a little bit more so, and maybe it's because their brands have been out there so long that they're they're not new anymore. They're not uh, the new greatest and best thing for everybody. And maybe they what they are launching isn't what the new craft beer drinkers looking for. So there's part of that. But I think they've lost their identity a little bit, a little bit in terms of what they are, what they stand for, 
and how they can go go back to some of the foundations they built their business on. Mm. I also think price discounting hurts hurts the national brewer because when they are down, they're the first ones to, to uh, get in the discount game. Mm-hmm. And then they drive a lot of their business through incentives. And incentives are great, and they work, but then you have to match up to those great incentive programs that you did last year in the current year. So I, I think they're financially stable. Obviously, a Sam Adams that has millions and millions of dollars in the bank is, is very, very stable, and so is Sierra Nevada. Um, they can last a long time, and yet I still think they have the, the innovation, the technology, the, the great marketing teams, the, uh, you know, the ownership that's been involved uh, to turn it around. So I think, you know, as we talked about, they go through peaks and valleys, they're in a valley. And uh, they need to think about what they're going to do for tomorrow to get out of it. Uh-huh. Mike, what's your take on all these sectors within the industry? Well, you know, what I think what's interesting is that when craft was really booming, um, everyone talked about the tailwinds of category growth, and no one really talks in terms of who's getting more than a fair share of growth, who's getting less than fair share of growth. And I think that with the category slowing, you're going to hear more talk along those lines, who's, who's getting fair share, who's not. And I mm-hmm. think that um, my hunch is going to be that uh, the, the medium-sized breweries are the ones that are going to struggle a little to get fair share. I think the, the smaller breweries, are they, they can position themselves to own a, a small town if they're in a small town or even a neighborhood if they're in a bigger city. So they've always got a reason for being in terms of that, that local area that they're a, a part of, where they're a part of the community. And the bigger guys, of course, um, for better or worse, can, can they have the, enough clout with distributors and retailers that they can get out new products to make up for the difference. I think of Sierra Nevada coming out with Sidecar and Tropical Torpedo. Um, I don't know, uh, you know what, what the company's expectations are for those brands. I don't know if they'll live up to expectations, but they'll get good volume. I think it's the, the breweries in the middle that don't have the scale and maybe don't have that one local area where they're a part of the community. I think they'll struggle a little more to have that identity that you talk about to really say, to really express who they are in a way that's meaningful and differentiating to consumers. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I, I know there's a, a danger. There's a danger in looking at any particular state and, and, uh, Seeing you know seeing that as transferable across the country, but when I talked to breweries in in Vermont, um, and I looked at the numbers, I mean the Breweries Association numbers production levels for last year, you know I was puzzled by this question of of who's winning and who's losing market share, and and the numbers for the small breweries almost without exception were extremely healthy, you know twenty thirty forty percent growth annual uh, growth. Um, uh, here in in this state for the small guys, uh, not so much for uh, and we you know we don't ha- necessarily have the very large uh, national brands, but you know we have some substantial regional and and uh, maybe some bordering on national. Um, but those numbers seem to be slowing down. But um, you know is it is it really sustainable for small breweries to continue to expect twenty thirty forty percent uh, growth year to year? I uh, well, think I, I think at there are some breweries that will actually continue that, but I think there's just as many that will cut their rates in half or less 
as the slowdown continues. The longer the slowdown, the more that the these smaller breweries will fight to get that business. And one of the reasons is the bigger players will come in and be piranhas and do things that they haven't done in the past, like deep discounts or keg deals or things to grab that business. And also the Anheuser-Busch's of the world, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, um, continue to expand their brand portfolios into our states. So as they get bigger in craft, um, I think that takes from the small guy. That's just mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, agree with, I agree with everything John said. I guess the, the only thing I would add, though, is in some cases uh, being small is an advantage and just that you're you're not in the sight lines of the big guys so much. Uh, uh-huh. Companies like AB InBev will actually, you know, target opportunities, and that opportunity is related to the, the breweries they're competing with. And uh, the, to the extent that ABI is going to say we need market share in this particular town, they're probably eyeing up the uh, the larger craft players and not paying much attention to the little guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's right. Yeah, yeah. How, how do the small breweries uh, compete in this saturated market? Uh, I think we've all seen the, the, the shelves, the cooler spaces, and just the sea of labels. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to, to sort of pick out the, your favorite brands uh, because there's so much beer on the shelf. Um, what's your assessment of how small breweries can gain success in today's market, and how do how do we even define success today? Well, you know that's a great question, Greg. I, I mean, it's a tough question for um, a lot of people. Maybe sitting on the sidelines thinking about building a brewery or going forward with their market plan that they've got approved with the bank or or their investors. Uh, you know, to look at tomorrow's business. But I think that. The, the, the breweries that have emerged um, all have um, a really unique story to tell. They have something about their brand or about their town or about their their family. Um, they have a very deep connection to the foundation of their brewery, and they tout it. They tell it every day to whoever will listen. And I think that unique story has come through with a lot of very, very fine marketed labels in the last, uh, let's say, 10 to 15 years. And uh, they, that goes along with passion. Um, they're very passionate about what they do and how they do it. Um, whether you take a brewery tour or you listen to a brewer at a beer festival, they, they have this trait of passion. And they instill it in everybody in their sales staff, their brewing staff, their tour guides, their people that work the bar, the tap rooms, they know and understand what that brewery's all about and what makes it tick. And I think that is really the foundation of, of why the small brewer has been successful. Along with that, they emphasize local. Most of their customer base is probably within 25 miles of their brewery, um, maybe even less than that for some of the small brew pubs or or craft brewers that have emerged in the last five years. Marketing by zip code tends to be a buzzword that defines the core market of these brewers. Um, And that's because the zip code is their footprint. It's where they do well. It's where they have that story already sold into their customer. And branding is also a part of, of creating their point of difference and emphasizing that local story. 
Mike and I know that we have a very, very solid success story in our home state of Wisconsin called the New Glarus Brewing Company and their, their brand Spotted Cow. It it means Wisconsin. It, it it breathes Wisconsin. We're the Dairyland State. They have a cow on their package, and they have a brand that is very, very drinkable for everybody in this state. And now they do 200,000 barrels of their of their beer in this great state of Wisconsin and haven't gone to any place else. Mm-hmm. So that is the true definition of a local success story and creating that local image and that branding success around it. Um, innovation is, is what we've kind of uh, alerted everybody to of what's maybe missing. Having the next best tasting IPA just isn't going to cut it. Um, today's consumer, they, they're demanding a lot more things, variety, edgy beer styles, uh, something that seems to be invented. Um, they want they want newness and uh, all all the things that a lot of breweries don't want to hear because they invest so much in packaging and branding in a current business that they don't want to just create the next new thing and have it last uh, you know three months and it's over. So, uh, but that's what they want. They seem to want new categories, new ingredients, new packaging, new outlets, online shopping. Um, new combination of things uh, that have never been in beer before, new technology. They, they want new, and um, that's where innovation's got to come through. Um, so I think that's part of uh, of how the small brewers can compete. They they tend to do things quick, quicker than the big guy. They can get into mm-hmm. stuff relatively quickly. Part of that's draft beer. I mean, they can they can make something really really fast, and uh, where big companies don't move that fast. And then I think along with that has to come quality. I think the consistency in taste profiles has to be a given. It has to be automatic, and they have to do a better job there. Local ingredients, I think uh, CSAs or homegrown stuff uh, by brewers, whether it's uh, they're growing their own hops or growing outside of town or purchasing local, I mean, those are all things. Authenticity, I, I'm, I'm always uh, leery of the word contract brewer, um, even though I, I worked here at City Brewery for a long, long time, and we did a lot of good contract brewing. Um, but authenticity means something to the customer. Bricks and mortar, having your own place, and uh, making that investment in uh, in creating your own brand. And then along with that uniqueness, I, I think those are all things a small brewer needs to keep doing that uh, make sense to their future. Uh, Mike, I've, I've heard you uh, state that craft beer competes as much or more with liquor and wine than, than with mainstream beer. Uh, could you elaborate? Sure. Um, I think there's, there's two ways you can sort of uh, frame uh, how, how uh, different types of beverages compete with one another. There's the more functional side or the product-oriented features, and there's the more emotional and tangible side. And in, in both cases, I think that uh, – craft beer competes more with, uh, as much or more with wine and liquor. For example, um, you know, one of the basic reasons for, for drinking a beverage is refreshment. And major beer brands have sold themselves with the claim that they're more refreshing or used the taglines involving refreshment for years. Um, I'm not saying that craft beer can't be refreshing. Some, some pale ales and IPAs and other styles can be very refreshing. But that's not usually the primary product-oriented reason people are drinking them. It's more about the you know, the stronger flavor, more about the flavor itself, the taste experience. Uh, refreshment kind of goes against taste. You know, the, the 
beers that are very sessionable that go down very quickly, uh, easily, like a Coors Light, tend to have a better claim to refreshment than do any craft beers. So, uh, and that's the reason people drink spirits and wine too, is for more for the flavor and a more uh, flavorful experience. On the intangible side, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche. People talk a lot about male bonding or traditional bonding, but that's how mainstream beer has positioned itself for years. Uh, all the big brands have, have strong elements of that sort of bonding in their, their positioning, and that's really, uh, you know, a group-oriented thing. It's more about fitting in. It's more about uh, uh, not expressing your differences, expressing your commonalities. Um, but the trend right now in American society is towards self-expression, individual self-expression, and craft beer plays there as well as wine and spirits. It's about a more personal, individual experience than it is about uh, completely fitting into the group. So that's what I mean when I say that. That's great. <clears throat> it sounds like you're, uh, it's coming from your teaching background. <laughs> do, you, do you teach uh, a, a course uh, on consumer trends? I taught, or? Consumer, I, I taught consumer behavior at the University of Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. And actually, that, that, this is a, you know, I could answer that question. I could spend an hour answering it. So that was the short <laughs> version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for everyone who's listening, we're talking with John Reynolds from Brewplan Inc. and Mike Kallenberger, a brand and commercial strategy consultant. If you would like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open. Call us at 929-477-1757. Again, that's 929-477-1757. And uh, recent months, I've spoken with people who have uh, produced creative equipment uh, to package beer differently. Earlier in our conversation, we did talk about uh, packaging as part of the innovation that's required uh, to increase uh, consumption of, of craft. Uh, most of the people I've spoken with um, are probably in the old category of a kegerator, um, but the new technology is sleek, efficient uh, ways to preserve and deliver keg beer at home or over several weeks, not just days. Um, some are referring to this as the equivalent to what Kerrig uh, did uh, to the coffee industry. Uh, is this hype or perhaps is there some truth? Any thoughts on how packaging might increase consumer demand? Yes. Um, I think the AB and Keurig thing is uh, uh, going to hit some consumers. Um, it's kind of an offshoot of the cold soda machine uh, that Keurig made. Um, this is obviously brand new technology that they're still working on, but I think it will target beer drinkers and tinkerers, people that like to homebrew first, but then uh, could potentially go mainstream, much like uh, you know some of the homebrewed coffee makers did with uh, with Keurig's other systems. So I think it could give AB a, a bridge uh, into uh, the home brewing segment, which they uh, also bought a a home brewing supply store chain, so they've got two different avenues to get there. Um, but I think there's possibly another thing that could come into this, and that's possibly that AB gets uh, further than beer through a machine like this into making spirits, cocktails, and mixers to kind of target that distilled spirits inroads that Mike talked about earlier. So there's a, there's an offshoot there that... Uh, that could easily uh, trans transpire for AB and Keurig to uh, grab more drinkers than just the beer drinker. 
I wanted to mention, John, that, that uh, I think a week ago, two weeks ago, I interviewed uh, uh, the president of Sinec. I don't know if you've seen their product, but it's a countertop uh, um, dispenser, uh, plug-in okay. on the counter. Um, but it 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 uh, it's, it's that sort of kegerator taken to another. The technology is more sophisticated. Or stick it in a machine on the counter and have it for a period of time. Um, I'll be talking with folks at UK um, out on the West Coast. Uh, they have a, a really nifty product as well. So there, there are a number of companies that are playing in this space uh, and creating some rather uh, innovative, creative products. Yeah. Um, Pico is out there, and uh, they seem to be a little pricey at 800 bucks, but I know that they uh, have worked out some programs with some of the larger regional brewers to, uh, you know, get tap into their recipes and their, their brewing formulas. So that that's something that's uh, kind of interesting. I don't know if you've also seen the uh, Stella Nova home draft system. It uses a 12-liter bottle and is a draft system that pours Stella beer out of that bottle um, cold and, and pours a nice frothy head and, it's 500 bucks for the system, but then uh, the bottles are quite expensive, and replacing them is difficult because not every place hold, you know, holds them or, or keeps them in stock. So uh, that's something for maybe down the road. But I see even that working for some of the rural bars that don't want to put draft systems in. So they uh-huh. just get a home brew system like that, buy the 12-liter uh, uh, bottles from their Anheuser-Busch distributor and uh, replace them. Uh, keep keep the rotation much like they do at kegs. It's it's a uh, simple way of not letting draft beer get old, but it's also uh, in a chilled container that uh, you know the consumer tastes draft beer uh, every day of the week. So I, I think that all those systems uh, might play a role to off premise use and particularly the rural markets where you don't have a brew pub to go to and you don't have a liquor store right nearby to go grab a six pack. You're out there in the in the let's say the the valleys of the world, and you want to drink your own beer or you want to drink a good beer, you may have to make it yourself. Yeah, Mike, what are you seeing in this space? Uh, well, I have to go a little bit on gut feel here, but I, I think it will be a profitable niche. But I have trouble seeing it going beyond a profitable niche. Um, there's a, I think there's a potential for this sort of thing to become a status symbol for people who have them in their homes. And uh, Mm -hmm. that, uh, that would actually be a bad thing in the long term. I think, I think that craft beer has always been uh, different positioned differently than say imported beer. Imported beer tends to be about a status symbol, conspicuous consumption, things like that. And if, and I'm I'm really going off on a tangent here, so forgive me. But if if if, if craft beer is ever perceived as sort of going down that path, I think it's going to be harmful to the whole image of the category. With that said, there's no reason it has to be just a status symbol. There's, as John pointed out, there's all kinds of very good reasons, very practical reasons for this thing to play a role in people's lives. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's t- let's spend a, a little bit of time just talking about mergers and acquisitions. Um, uh, let's break this down a little bit in, in a couple of categories. First, uh, when we look at Goose Island, Ballast Point, Hop Valley, Lagunitas Founders, Firestone Walker, Brooklyn Brewery, 
I could go on and on here. Um, how do these new business partnerships help uh, smaller craft breweries? And the ones I'm talking about here, we're not talking about big breweries, but they are, um, I guess they're larger in the craft space, uh, generally speaking. Um, how do they help them in the domestic and international markets? Um, I, I think the first thing they give them is scale and resources. I mean, just money alone, the buying power of those larger companies, um, whether it be in their purchasing departments, their marketing departments, or any other way that they're they're just buying ingredients alone. Um, the craft brewer struggles at times to sign up for some of these long-term contracts with ops or barley. It ties up their money. And, uh, you know, to get the best price, you got to buy and sometimes the quantities you're buying for truckloads of packaging materials or, or marketing materials is way beyond what you really need that particular year. You might be investing two, three years out. And uh, that's what Anheuser Busch and Miller and Heineken and Constellation and all these bigger companies give them. They give them that buying power because they just tie you into their own existing contracts and they, uh, they get you to the right price immediately. Um, Manpower, they have a sales force already in place. They're just adding brands to to what those sales folks already are selling. And some of them are so good at handling multiple multi-brand systems that adding two, three, four more brands is not a big deal. Uh, it's when the the you add ten brands like Anheuser Busch is doing, and you bring them all in at the same time. Now that's a big deal. So I'm certain there's a there's a select rollout plan, but the sales force is very important because they're highly trained, they're 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 very connected, and now you're adding uh, you know potentially new markets right expansion, so the distributors are there. It's uh-huh. not like yeah. you have to go out and interview a distributor and you maybe interview six distributors and finally select one. You already know who you're going with, and you already know they already know that person inside and out and they know what they're good at and they know how to launch brands in that market. So there's experience there on the marketing side. It's media. It's, you know, social media, consumer promotion, sponsorship, special events, POS, brand programming. They fit you into their plan. They have the plan already set and they add your brands to it. I mean, if you think of a big special event, we have a large one here called Oktoberfest in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where I live. If Anheuser-Busch is already buying in for a sponsorship, they can walk your brand right in as part of the portfolio. It's mm-hmm. very simple for them to do that in the markets throughout the country. So, And, you know, there's no difference with a Heineken or a Constellation. They have a lot of those type of arrangements that, on their own and internationally as well. In fact, mm-hmm. they would probably have more of them internationally than some of the other brewers. So those are all good things to help. And then finally, national accounts. Um, and Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Constellation, any one of those companies, Heineken, they have teams of individuals that call on the chains. If they want your brand to be a chain brand, they just add you to the chain call and you're in. I mean, I hardly doubt that the chain buyer is going to say to the Anheuser-Busch guy, that's not going to sell in my stores. They're going to prove it'll sell. They'll make it sell. They'll, you know, make the programming right so the brand will get off the ground and fit into the uh, the chain store uh, new authorization. Mm-hmm. 
So I think all of those factors um, are uh, have the big boys helping the little guy. My, I want to ask you about international markets. We're beginning to hear more and more about how some of our national craft brands are now beginning to appear uh, in, in, in these other markets, uh, you know, from Heineken, Mahu, San Miguel, Constellation Brands. How are they helping these breweries uh, uh, access international markets? Well, um, that's more a question, I think, for John than myself, because I don't have a lot of background in that. But I do think that uh, certainly this, uh, it's very similar, uh, access to distribution, uh, uh, marketing support, sales support, things like that. Uh, what will be interesting is to see how some of these brand propositions play out in international markets. The uh-huh. history of brands going international is full of stories of brands that simply missed a, a cultural nuance that mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, render their positioning less less effective. So uh, I think that's one way these big brewers can help is by uh, making them aware of cultural sensitivities and maybe helping make sure that their brand positioning plays well in those international markets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we've touched on distribution. I want to talk for just a few minutes about that. Um, obviously getting beer to market, whether it's uh, local, regional, national, international, is the key to growth for, for most breweries. Um, uh, as we've seen specialty craft-only uh, distributors emerge, um, uh, and, and with some success, uh, uh, want to ask about that trend and what you see in the future. Uh, is this uh, in part a, a reaction to being one of 50 craft brands that a large distributor has in their portfolio and breweries just not feeling that they are receiving the attention that, that is required? Uh, as new breweries come on board, are they going to be looking for kind of specialty distributors who can uh, help them get to market? What are your thoughts? Yes. The answer is yes. Um, I think there's a trend right now of as the Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors distributors have consolidated over the years, there's been less and less distributors uh, for the choices of people to go to. You even saw a boom uh, for uh, wine and spirits distributors to handle craft beers over the course of maybe 10 years where they grew in that segment really, really fast. But I think to your point, Greg, is that um, there is an emergence of that specialty craft-centric only distributor. And and it it started a while back. It didn't start necessarily this year or just this last two years. But um, I think, you know, one of the the biggest ones is uh, right to the south of us here, Windy City, um, started, I think, in 1996 uh, and now is owned by the Reyes Company. Um, we had a, a company right here in our home state of uh, Wisconsin um, that was called the Specialty uh, Beverage uh, Distributing Company, and that's now owned by the Sheehan family at uh, um, Beachwood. Um, so there's lots of those. There's, there's, there's ones that started out as their own distributorship. Maybe they were aligned with one or two or three, four breweries, and then they became larger, and then they got bought. So that's one avenue uh, that they've done it. Uh, Stone is one of... Uh, one of the business models I think you might want to take a look at uh, out in California. They seem to have 35 to 40 craft brewers. They are very, very successful in their own footprint. 
um, of uh, you know that San Diego's five county area down there, and uh, they've grown substantially because they can do their own uh, self distribution. Um, and then there's all the ones that have emerged uh, over the course of the last few months. But I think the bigger reason is the of what these distributors um, bring to the party. What do they have, and why can they compete against the mega distributors that are out there? And for people that are new to this uh, business, this is something that you know that could be a strategy in your business plan as you're coming out of the gate as a startup, is to think about being your own self-distributor as your own brewery, using your brewery license, and do it on your own. And here's why. Most of the, uh, the, the, the distributors that have emerged, the first thing they do with their, their sales staff is they get them cer- Cicerone certified. They literally send them to school. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a distributor in Michigan called Imperial Beverage. Um, they're based out of Kalamazoo. They have 28 Cicerone certified salespeople, and they have one master Cicerone on staff. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That's 30 people. You know, they're all they're all with that Cicerone certification. They don't let them become a salesperson without doing it. Mm-hmm. They hold regular beer schools for their employees and their retailers, and they call it knowledge is power. They want to know more about every beer. They send them to the breweries. They listen to the brewery reps. They listen to the brewmaster. They find out everything that's ticking inside that brewery. They do in-house tastings. They bring the breweries to their distributorship every week or every other week, and they taste the new beers with their staff. They get into the market to stay ahead of the trends. They don't sit in their offices. They're out finding out what's going on at Kraft, and they're learning what's going on about what the competition's doing. They're information technology-driven. I know my son, 21 years old, lives off his iPhone. So do these folks. They live off iPhones, iPads. They have online access to databases. They have information at their fingertips, and they're very well-informed. They hand-sell. They literally think about what they're going to do, and they hand-sell everything they touch. And they're not driven by what's on the computer necessarily. They want to touch and feel the actual packaging, and, the, and then they bring the story that the brewers have given them to the market with that hand cell. Many of these craft-centric distributors are 100% refrigerated trucks. That's a huge point of difference because a lot of these craft beers are non-pasteurized. So, therefore, when they come to market, it's cold from when it leaves the brewery, it's in a refrigerated truck to the warehouse, it's in a refrigerated truck to the retailer, and it's in a refrigeration to the consumer. It never once gets warm in that distribution chain. That's a huge point of difference from what goes on today at the large distributorships. They have refrigerated warehouses, but they don't have refrigerated trucks in most cases, <laughs> delivery vans. Mm-hmm. There's also no minimum order size for a lot of these craft central wholesalers. They'll sell you one case. They'll break up cases. They'll sell you they'll sell you a hundred dollar bottle one at a time. Whereas the larger distributors tend to say, uh, we're you know robotics picked or we only sell full cases or your minimum orders ten. They won't they won't get down to the level that the small guy does. And then they go after the portfolio. They go after these hard to find irreverent, rare beers that 
nobody else seems to be able to find, but the craft-centric guy picks them up or goes overseas and finds them and, and brings them to the U.S., and they're not from countries that you necessarily would think have great beer or they're not promoted in any uh, big beer magazines. And finally, they diversify into the segments that they see fit the same customer they're selling to, whether that's craft cider, whether that's the new seltzers, whether it's craft spirits. They're augmenting their portfolio with things necessarily that the large distributors don't do. That's how they're going to be successful. Well, there is an example of, of what happens when you're in the industry for 35 years in beer, <laughs> beer and sales and marketing, right? That's right. I'm I mean, sure. that's what, but that's what they teach guys like me. When yeah. I walk into a distributor like them, you would not believe what I learned. You know, I mean, they are very, very ahead of the game, and they are, they are driving the craft beer business along with these brewers that come up with these exotic recipes. I want to talk about one other uh, uh, sort of uh, reality and phenomenon, perhaps, in the industry uh, that everyone's talking about and experiencing. Uh, Mike, how about starting with you on uh, tap rooms? Uh, everyone seems to have a tap room these days, a, a brewery of any size whatsoever. And obviously, uh, selling beer uh, direct to consumers makes sense financially, uh, but it also seems to help build a, a relationship with uh, with consumers. Uh, when you visit a tap room, you get a certain vibe for the brewery, the people behind the brand. Uh, there's a, a connection that you can't have if you're just picking up uh, that beer in the in the supermarket. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of this this trend? Does a tap room attached to a brewery simply become a given and essential part of a business plan these days? Well, the truth is I think this is an area where perceptions are catching up to reality because I've always believed that a tap room was an essential part of a brewery for many of the reasons you cited. And it is, I, I, I've told people for years, the tap room is your primary marketing device. It's the primary expression of your brand and what it stands for. Uh, and I, I, I tell people that, you know, um, uh, you, you, theoretically, you've got a brand positioning strategy. If you don't have one, you should have one. If you've got one, it, it probably could be better. But that should be driving everything, including the design of your tap room. When, when you have a, someone, you hire someone to build that tap room, you need to brief them on the brand positioning strategy. What are we trying to bring to life here? What is the, the mood or the atmosphere we're trying to create? How does that connect to the brand? So it is such, it is, I think, the, the, the number one way to express your brand identity and what your brand stands for. And that goes down to even the kind of music you play in that tap room. So uh, I, I, my, the short answer is an enthusiastic yes. This is absolutely critical, and I'm glad that breweries are more and more discovering or, or deciding that tap rooms are the way to do that. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah, I had this experience uh, a few months ago to visit a – brewery outside of um right, right up uh 10 miles or so outside of um, the logan airport uh just north on the north shore of boston called night shift uh and it's if you haven't seen it you got to go see it because it's uh i think a, a perfect example of how the the culture the brand messaging is translated into the space and the environment and you go there almost any evening and uh you get this vibe that's uh it's pretty powerful, and it's it, it you know you don't see the same kind of 
environment everywhere. Uh, they did an excellent job of, of uh, constructing that, uh, that space. John, any yeah, yeah, uh, last sure. comment about the tap rooms? I, I just I think there's something about the millennial that really fits the tap room image. Um, I don't know exactly um, what the driving factor is, but they seem to want to hang out there. They seem to want yeah. to think that's their place, their second place, whatever you want to call that, away from home, that they can be comfortable and not be marketed to. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. while it's subtle marketing, as, as uh, Mike points out, whether it be through the uh, brewing tanks of painting them or the tours you give or the gift shop or the music video or the ambiance with the fireplace or the food you serve or just even the conversation and seeing the same people you see once a week, twice a week, whatever, it's, it's amazing how tap rooms have cultivated that younger audience and they, they're, how many are successful? Hundreds, yeah. hundreds, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. The, and the corner tavern is going away. So the person, the, you know, your dad, my dad, you know, myself that grew up in the corner tavern, they are the ones that are losing out to the tap room or to the brew yeah. pub. And I sense that's, you know, brand loyalty is is what's being developed there by these by these great craft brewers. They've really captured it. And I think yeah. there's also a part of, you know, stimulating trial of new beers there where these yeah. people are in their experimentation. They're, they're trying everything. They're putting stuff in kettles that's never been put there before. Well, these people are buying into that. They're going yeah. to try that new beer. And uh, these people are using them as their, their market research. And then they're driving that back to the wholesalers that they use or the distributors with the feedback they gain from the customer is the reason that they're launching a new beer or tweaking a new beer because they found out firsthand information. And right. I, I said yeah. that's part of it. And then finally, I think there's this something about um, new releases and, and special bottlings where you can really capture your customer by inviting them to something special. You do it through social media. You, you, you grab that customer and you bring them to your tap room and you only make, let's say, 500 600 bottles or 1,200 bottles, whatever it is, and you give you number those bottles or you, you put batch numbers on them or whatever. Lakefront in Milwaukee, where Mike is at, they, they do a Black Friday special beer offering where they, they do 1,200 bottles, 600 people line up you know, at 5 in the morning for an 8 a.m. kickoff. They, they give away or not give away, they sell two bottles to each customer, and 1,200 bottles are gone in less than an hour. And you can only get it that one day. And uh-huh. That is really incredible. That they, yeah. It's the man that doesn't want to go Black Friday shopping or the brewer that wants to get something special. They do it because they were invited. You know, and yeah. I think yeah. it's really neat. I, I, the only thing I'll mention on tap rooms besides that is I think that the new craft brewer, the young emergent, the new entrant, I think if they're in a very saturated market, like a Portland, a Denver, uh, a Washington State, a California, and they don't think they can get a wholesaler to take their business on, and they can't do self-distribution, they should seriously think about making the best tap room that they ever could make. And it goes to Mike's branding of the tap room and making it the place where they may not leave for three to five years. They literally would sell and be a, a craft brewer with taproom-only business. And yeah. you'd be amazed. 
how that can build a brand and word of mouth and through the fabric of the community, it'll eventually go out there and they'll become a brand in that after that three year period automatically. You know, I'm. I'm uh, yep. Go ahead, Mike. I just wanted to add one comment to sort of summarize the whole thing because you know the word authenticity has become such a buzzword that some people even make fun of you when you use the word authenticity. But the truth is authenticity matters, and there is absolutely nothing more authentic to the brand than being in that tap room with the people who brew the beer, where the beer is brewed. That that that's just hugely creates that feeling of authenticity that's so important. Yeah, I wanted to just add one uh, one additional component to this, and it, it reminds me today, the, the tap rooms in many breweries remind me of the, the English pubs. Uh, they become sort of social uh, environments. Uh, you meet your friends, you meet new friends, uh, in addition to meeting the staff who are behind uh, the product that you consume. And, you know, I'll go to some local breweries here in Vermont, Stone Corral, Queen City Brewery, and you see the same faces. You see a lot of new faces, too. But you see just, you know, people, that's, that's their local pub. That's their local brewery tap room. And uh, they're very loyal. And they, they uh, try their new products and just spend lots of time uh, meeting friends there. It's a pretty, uh, pretty cool thing. Yep. Well, unfortunately, uh, we're out of time. Uh, I'd like to... To really thank John Reynolds and Mike Kallenberger for offering their perspectives today um, on the state of the U.S. craft beer industry and a lot of the nuances of, of what's happening out there. If you ever dreamed of uh, opening your own brewery or you're looking for a career change into the craft beer sector, uh, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer Certificate offers the necessary industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. Uh, check out our program. You can give us a call at 800-639-3210, or you can visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash UVM Business of Craft Beer. On our next uh, Blog Talk radio show on March 21st, we'll be talking with two leading cooperative breweries and learn about this new business model as it's applied to the beer industry. Uh, until then, uh, have a great afternoon, and don't forget, please visit your local breweries. Uh, thanks again, uh, John and Mike, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.